Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the erosion of the TV landscape. Seems like a topic that might have been better suited to be paired up with Gerrymander, the previous show's different drummer. But actually, I think I have a better different drummer for this topic, because rather than talking about television as technology being beyond the possibility of being reformed, which was essentially Mander's argument, I want to present a much more simple argument today. The product itself just isn't that good. I haven't heard this articulated any better than the 1998 film Bullworth, directed by Warren Beatty, starring Warren Beatty, and written by Warren Beatty and Jeremy Pixer in an Academy Award-nominated screenplay. And I think that the best way to get started today is simply to let my different drummer, Jay Bullworth, speak for himself. This is another different drummer who's a fictional character, and as you will be able to see very early on, the words that he has to share would never be welcome on television, because even though we complain today about language on TV and uh, innuendo on TV, the content of television, the adult nature of shows, cartoons in particular, compared to what they were like a few decades back, the reality is when you give yourself permission to speak freely, as the character Bullworth does, you really get to a place where television cannot accommodate you. So, the hint there, permission to speak freely. This will be the single most uh, explicit tag-earning, inappropriate conversation so far. Perhaps not so much because of any words I may share, but because I'm going to give the stage over to Bullworth and let the character from the film speak for himself. So what is the plot of Bullworth? A depressed and jaded U.S. senator on the eve of a primary election for a re-election campaign has decided that he is done and he's going to end it all. And in the very first scene of the movie, you can tell from the exposition that he has you know, hired a hitman to contract his own death so that he won't deprive his family of insurance money and won't necessarily... Um, besmirch whatever reputation he may feel that he still has because he feels like he's part of the political machine. The character is a Democrat, but he could just as easily be a Republican. And I'll speak to that after I uh, play a clip and, and let the uh, let the senator speak for himself. In the course of the story, though, he begins to realize that since he's going to be dead soon anyway, he doesn't know the exact time and the place of the assassination. He just knows that it's been bought and paid for, that he doesn't have any reason to continue to pretend in front of constituents, and he starts telling constituents the truth. Black constituents, Jewish constituents, the young, the very old, and he finds this truth-telling to be incredibly empowering and strengthened by the idea of what it means to be able to, to tell people what's really going on and have them respond to it at first angrily, but later from the polling numbers enthusiastically, and then also meeting a young woman who is not his wife and again, figuring out that it doesn't really matter what he does because he uh, is only willing to accept the idea of earthly consequences. And he's not expecting to be alive long enough to experience those consequences. But at some point along the way, he decides this is too good to pass up. 
He doesn't want to die, but he has no idea how to call off the hitman, has actually no idea who the hitman is. That's the setup. To me, the plot line, even as skeletally as I presented it, is nowhere near as interesting as the uh, truths that are spoken along the way. And I'm going to let um, I'm going to let Bulwer speak for himself. And as I'm doing it, supplant him as a Democratic candidate, speaking about the Democratic Party's relationship with its black voter base, with the Republican Party and the Republican Party's relationship with its religious right voter base, because. There's a parallel there that I think most of us don't take for granted, and we probably should begin to take it for granted that uh, I'll pick up on the other side. Here's Bullworth. Senator, why this new campaign style? Why this new manner of dress and speech? Your ethnic manner of speech, your, your clothes? The use of obscenity. Obscenity? My third cousin, okay, he was, it's true, on the playground, and they're out there trying to keep you in a bump the limb. I think it's great. I think it's better. I mean, I'm not going to regret that for you. Of course not. Of course you're not going to regret that. I mean, the rich is getting richer and richer and richer, while the middle class is getting more poor. Just making billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of bucks. Well, my friend, if uh, you weren't already rich at the start, that 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 situation sucks because the the richest motherfucker in five of us is getting ninety fucking eight percent of it. And every other motherfucker in the world is left to wonder where the fuck we went with it. Obscenity. I'm a senator. I gotta raise ten thousand dollars a day every day. I'm in Washington. I ain't getting it in South Central. I'm getting it in Beverly Hills. And so I'm voting in the Senate the way they want me to, and and and, and I'm, I'm I'm sending them my bills. But we got we got babies in South Central dying as young as they do in Peru. We got public schools that are nightmares. We 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 got a Congress that ain't got a clue. We got kids with submachine guns. We got militias throwing bombs. We got Bill just getting all weepy. We got Newt blaming teenage moms. We got factories closing down. Where the hell did all the good jobs go? Well, I'll tell you where they went. My contributors make more profits making, 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 hiring kids in Mexico. Old brother can work in fast food if he can't invent computer games. But what we used to call America, that's going down the drains. How's a young man going to meet his financial responsibilities working in motherfucking Burger King? He ain't! And please, don't even start with that school shit. There ain't no education going on up in that motherfucker. Obscenity? We got a million brothers in prison. I mean, the walls are really rocking, but you can bet your ass they'd all be out if they could pay for Johnny Cochran. The Constitution's supposed to give them an equal chance. Well, that ain't going to happen for sure. Ain't it time to take a little from the rich motherfucker and just give a little to the poor? I mean, there's boys over there on the monitor. They want a government smaller and weak. But they'd be speaking for the richest 20% when they pretend and they defend in the meek. Ah, shit. Fuck. Cocksucker. That's the real obscenity black folks living with every day is trying to believe a motherfucking word Democrats and Republicans say. Obscenity? I'm Jay Billington Bullworth, and I've come to say the Democratic Party's got them shit to pay. It's gonna pay it in the ghetto. It's gonna pay it in the... Senator, are you saying that the Democratic Party doesn't care about the African-American Isn't that obvious? Look, a lot of people think there are no black leaders today because they all got killed, but I happen to think it's because of the decimation of the manufacturing base in the urban centers. Don't you think so? What do you think my age is? He's had his time. Bless him. You know, the guy in the booth who's talking to you on a tiny little earphone, he's afraid the guys at network are going to tell him he's through if he lets the guy keep talking like I'm talking to you. Because the corporation's got the networks and they get to say who gets to talk about the country and who's crazy today. I would cut to a commercial if you still want this job, because you may not be back tomorrow with this corporate mob. Cut to a commercial. Okay, flush him. Cut the commercial. 
Cut the commercial. Cut the commercial. Cut the commercial. Okay, okay. I got a simple question that I'd like to ask. If this network that pays you for performing your task, how come they got the airwaves? They're the people's, aren't they? Wouldn't they be worth 70 billion to the public today if some money grubbing Congress didn't give them away for big campaign money? It's hopeless, you see. If you're running for office without no TV, if you don't get big money, you get a defeat. Corporations and broadcasters make you dead meat. You've been taught in this country their speech that is free. But free do not get you no spots on TV. If you want to have senators not on the take, then give them free airtime. They won't have to fake. Telecommunications is the name of the beast that's eaten up the world from the west to the east. The movies, the tabloids, TV and magazines, they tell us what to think and do and all our hopes and dreams. All this information makes America fat. But if the company's out of the country, how American is that? But we got Americans with families can't even buy a meal. Ask a brother who's been downsized if he's getting any deal. Or a white boy busting ass till they put him in his grave. He ain't got to be a black boy to be living like a slave. Rich people have always stayed on top. By dividing white people from colored people. But white people got more in common with colored people than they do with rich people. We just got to eliminate them. Eliminate. Eliminate. Who, rich people? White people. Damn. Black people, too. Brown people, yellow people. Get rid of them all. All we need is a voluntary, free-spirited, open-ended program of procreative racial deconstruction. Everybody just got to keep fucking everybody till they're all the same color? Damn. I think it's... Uh, I just love the line where the reporter asks him to clarify. So you're saying that the Democratic Party doesn't doesn't really care about black voters? And he dismisses her question as if it's idiotic. So isn't that obvious? No, let's get on to what I really want to talk about. And let's put that in the in the Republican sphere. Who who is the Republican base? What would you say if if there was a is a parallel group? And it probably would be the religious right. And I would make the argument that in a similar situation with a Republican candidate telling truths versus truths like, you know, we've got right now anyway, the Republican Party has a Supreme Court kind of in the bag. They will complain about not having enough of a majority, not having enough powers, the courts being against them, because a lot of Republican rhetoric, and I say this as a Republican, a lot of Republican rhetoric is we, they. Everything has to be us versus them, and we have to be the underdog. We have to be the, the embattled minority trying to restore things to the way they ought to be. Because the idea of conservatism is you know, embedded in that idea of conserve. We're trying to restore things. We're trying to conserve or, or to reestablish things into where, to the way they ought to be. But it almost always means that they've got to be David, and the enemy has to be Goliath even if David and Goliath are in bed with each other, which is my perspective of Democrats and Republicans. So I would say to you that the uh, TV reporter in this case could just as easily ask, you know, so Senator, are you saying that the uh, Republican Party doesn't care at all about the religious right? Isn't that obvious? Isn't that obvious? How many years do you have to go back? And you have to go back at least to the Reagan, you know, term, at the very least 1984. Let's just pick 1984 and say Ronald Reagan reelected in what at the time was one of the biggest landslides in U.S. history and perceived to be an even bigger landslide than it probably actually was. If you ask the average voter to put a percentage on it, I wonder how many people today would remember that 1984 election as being 80-20 or 90-10 when it was nowhere near that lopsided. But it was still, again, a decisive victory by any stretch of the imagination. What we're saying then is that from 1984 to now, the Republican Party, wielding all of that power, literally from 1984 to the end of the George W. Bush administration, 
there only being eight years in all that time when Republicans were in charge of the presidency. And Republicans have never invested the political capital that would have to be invested and frankly lost to do things like put indoctrinational prayer in public schools or to ban all abortions and, and you know make it illegal. The Republicans hide behind the idea that they need a constitutional amendment to do some of these things. They don't. They could do a lot of these things with executive order if they were willing to deal with the civil unrest that would come from it and the political losses that would inevitably result. And, as, and I would say that there's no interest whatsoever in doing what their base wants. Well, the same with Bullworth. Telling honest answers, at least from 1998 economic standards, of how much money you have to raise as a member of Congress to be in the Senate, the House of Representatives, national elective office, you know, at that scale, how much money do you have to raise in order to keep yourself in office? And what are the people who are giving you that money asking you without necessarily asking you to do? Or maybe it is more overt than I know. Maybe it's literally quite the quid pro quo. I'm giving you this money and I expect you to torpedo that health insurance bill. Or, you know, again, think of the, um, we have a health insurance situation in our country today where we have tried to overhaul the system in such an inept way that you really can't make an intelligent argument, either from the right or for the left, that the health reform that has been presented to us makes any sense whatsoever. But the right is not opposed to the health reform because the health reform was done poorly. They're, reformed to they're seemingly opposed to touching it at all. And as the left not asking the obvious question, there's an obvious question that the left isn't asking, and that's, what makes it a good idea for the employer to be responsible for providing health insurance? And what do we do when the person who is unemployed may need health care the most you know, desperately? How do you manage that disconnect? And what do insurance companies have to do with it? Well, I'll tell you this. Insurance companies give a lot of money to political candidates. So I'm very pleased that uh, Bullworth, Jay Bullworth, is available as a fictional character written by Warren Beatty um, to provide us with uh, this sort of honest insight, things you can get away with in fiction that you can't necessarily get away with in nonfiction because it seems less controversial that way. Uh, now, to be honest with you, this was perhaps Warren Beatty's most controversial work. As a director, Beatty was responsible for a handful of films from 1978 to 1998. So during that 20-year span, uh, working primarily as an actor, so not directing solely for his career, Heaven Can Wait, which was a remake, 1978, Reds, not just the pinnacle of his career, but one of the finest films ever made in 1981, Dick Tracy, for my money, the low point of his career in 1990, and Bullworth in 1998. But he also was a producer for films that he appeared in as an actor, Bonnie and Clyde comes to mind as a good example. Shampoo, an interesting one. And Ishtar, perhaps a really bad example. So Warren Beatty, very high creative output without a lot of titles, but a lot of titles with some very good ones. Of all the characters that he's portrayed, well, Heaven Can Wait Again, a remake. Red's dealing with an historical figure. Dick Tracy, very much a comic book figure. Bullworth is the one that I like the best. It seems to be the most genuinely drawn I'm not necessarily going to call it original. I don't think that's the right uh, word for it, but genuinely drawn. So what does Bullworth have to do with TV? Well, two things. First, Bullworth relatively unlikely to appear on television. 
But in one of the other scenes in the film, Bullworth is speaking before some Hollywood moguls, and they ask him a question about uh, you know, whether he thinks it's appropriate for Congress to be considering censoring the movies or censoring television programs over questions of the depictions of drug abuse or of violence. And Bullworth interrupts him and says, listen, guys, guys, the problem with movies today has nothing to do with sex or violence or nudity or drugs. It's just, you know, they're not very good, are they? And that's the question, particularly on the side of television, that I'd like to look at today. In one sense, me as a random, casual TV viewer couldn't really be considered a random sample. Um, I am the, the one sample that I've interviewed, so I'm the one person that can speak from my perspective about what typical television is like. So it is very possible that if you took a much more random view and interviewed lots of people, you'd get a much more different image of TV. But I want to share with you my perspective of what I think a typical TV night would be like dealing primarily just with the like seven o'clock post um, evening news. I'll get to the news later at the, at the end of the cycle. And to me the, the night starts with gossip shows. It's either entertainment tonight, which is a more clean marketing vehicle, or it's more stuff like the sort of who's sleeping with who stuff. These are the kind of programs where when tiger woods cheats on his wife multiple times with multiple women in multiple cities, it's exciting. Uh, that's their big break. This is the moment they've been waiting for. Ratings are going to surge. And um, I, I frankly find it you know, almost offensive. It's certainly a very low end of the scale in terms of quality. That might be followed by something like a game show. And I'm not going to say that the quality of game shows is necessarily worse than it's ever been in the past. But I don't remember game shows when I was a kid being a prime time vehicle. Uh, I think the uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire changed that a lot. It was, the, to me, one crucial moment in recent memory where game shows did become the big primetime event. But you have other followers ever since then. Um, the, uh, the one with uh, opening up all the cases um, where people were guessing you know, how much money was in each one of the cases. Just a random guessing game, literally. Or the uh, minute to win it sort of thing now where one of the, the food channel superstars is putting people through very small, quick, I would say short attention span tasks. So you got the game shows. And then when you get over to the sitcoms, the sitcom landscape seems to be to be no better or no worse than it's ever been. It's just, you know, historically hasn't been all that good. But we'll, I'll get into some detail there later. It's probably the best of all the brands I'm going to mention, at least in this intro of typical TV. And then when you hit the dramas and the dramas fall into two main paths that intersect with each other. One of them is either that you're dealing with the standard rote, so the latest version of a medical drama, the latest version of a police procedural, or the latest version of a uh, law courtroom drama, or sometimes the combinations therein. But I don't see that much difference you know, from the evolution to say, well, NCIS is like CSI, is like Law and & Order, and if you go back, 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 back far enough, you get all that being ultimately like Mannix, Burnaby Jones, and um, you know the FBI story, and other you know shows from my childhood that were the same kind of program. There's you know obviously subtle differences in the way they're plotted, and some of these programs are better than others, but they're of a similar ilk. Speaking of of a similar ilk, the other thing that we see these days, especially in the area of drama, is the flat-out remake. Um, Hawaii Five-O this year proved to be a quote hit unquote. 
I didn't watch it, so I can't speak to how good it might otherwise be. And it's different from the original, but it's ironic that it has to be built upon that same skeleton. And next year, one of the promos we're already seeing for um, fall TV is Charlie's Angels. Now, again, I have very little doubt that this will be updated in significant ways. But again, updated on the skeleton of Charlie's Angels. What's next? The new version of It Is Enough or The Love Boat? So typical TV is not all that pleasant. It ends, of course, with the evening news, and I've become jaded enough about the evening news that, to me, that's a program to watch for really three reasons only. And it used to be that these three reasons were always important, but now they've become the only thing I'm interested in. Is the highway that I drive in my morning commute going to be ripped up? Am I going to have to plan for a detour? Is the weather going to force me to change the way I dress? or to be concerned about the welfare of my property and my home while I'm at work. And who won tonight's ball game? That's it. Other than that, television is doing the best it can to provide entertainment. And more often than not, I'm probably going to be tuning into a movie if I get the opportunity or a sporting event than anything else. And the movie that I'm going to tune into, if I get a choice is going to be something that I wouldn't expect to see on television or that I wouldn't expect to see shown on television in an unadulterated form. Again, Bullworth, with the language used in that particular clip I shared, could not possibly be shown uncut on network TV. But what would be lost if you actually had to remove the gangsta from the rap? Dan Carlin, Common Sense. I'm sorry, folks. I know it's a little bit utopian, but, you know, you wonder if these people can't have a statesmanship moment now. When could they have one? I mean, the kind of people we have in D.C. now representing us from both parties would fight during World War II. Fiercely independent. It's common sense. I mean, there is no moment that is so dire and so important and so threatening to our children's future that we won't suspend this sort of politics for? Slapping around the ideas until they're black and blue. Dan Carlin. Common Sense. One of my favorite podcasts, uh, Common Sense. You can find that at www.dancarlin.com. To connect the dots with last week's show, one of the inherent biases in television is that new is always better than old, that shows influenced heavily by technology are better than shows which are not. And in this regard, you, you see this all the time. The latest trend, uh, 3D TV versus 2D TV. Uh, there's a funny ad for Best Buy on their product replacement program where the man is just getting his 3D TV delivered when he sees an advertisement for coming soon a 4D TV, and he regrets his purchase before even having it installed. It's that sort of notion. Bigger is better. Um, the latest is greatest. But what if the latest is nothing more, really, than its highest, than a really good imitation of what went before? You know, what if the latest, greatest thing owes a gigantic debt to what uh, preceded it? Where do you give the artistic credit then? And what I would say is that that's probably true across the board. And I want to wander through some genres of television and just kind of, you know, speak a little bit about myself and say, you know, what would I be watching? I've complained about a typical night of TV. What would I do instead? What would I rather see? And I come from the generation of kids that when you came home from school and you had that maybe two hour gap between school being over and parents being 
home and wanting you to do stuff. So um, either dinner was served between 5 and 6 p.m., or you needed to have a role to play in preparing for dinner between 5 and 6 p.m., whether that be setting the table or emptying, emptying the dishwasher or whether it be uh, taking care of some – putting away some laundry because they want you out of the kitchen and out of the way or even outside. Uh, never a bad idea playing outside. But during the two-hour span, you know, right after school, I'd be watching shows like Gilligan's Island, uh, The Brady Bunch, Star Trek, um, cartoons – the Looney Tunes cartoons. So that's kind of where I'm coming from, that I would have grown up on those kinds of shows. And so the, it, just to give you a sense of who I am, and on Saturday morning, waking up for Saturday morning cartoons would have been more of the Looney Tunes sort of stuff, but it also would have been a different kind of animation than what you typically to see today. So let me start with the cartoon. I'll save the adult cartoon for later, but just you know, children's television or children's cartoons today. I have not seen anything on any of the networks, not the Disney networks, not the Cartoon Network, not the um, Nickelodeon, that I personally find as engaging as cartoons that I saw as a kid. Johnny Quest, for example. I'd rather watch Johnny Quest than anything that's been made in the last 25 years in children's TV programming. And when I do tune in to something like uh, the Boomerang Network or the Cartoon Network, I'm delighted if Scooby-Doo's on. In a way that I, I just can't describe to you, that if I'm going to have to watch a cartoon, that's the one I'd, I'd rather see. And part of it's nostalgia, I'll grant you. Part of it is just, I connect with this, this reminds me of my childhood. But I'm not sure that the, what we might call badly drawn 2D cell-by-cell animation, is the problem. You know, Give me characters that are endearing, give me inside jokes, give me something that is genuinely entertaining, and I don't really care how well it's drawn. So there's your cartoon. For the news, well, I already mentioned, if I'm going to watch the news today, I'm going to watch um, local news. I'm going to be looking for those three specific things. Give me the traffic, give me the weather, give me the sports scores, and I'm out. And anymore, why do you have to wait until the last part of a newscast to see a sports score when most of us carry around the Internet in our cell phone? Most of us have no trouble finding an Internet connection somewhere close by that we can use to dial up that score and find out right away without waiting for a quote-unquote sportscaster to tell us what occurred. And from a national news perspective, I've you know I kind of come to appreciate that shows like The Daily Show because I'd rather see somebody make fun of what's dysfunctional in the other news networks, news programs, MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, than to actually watch any of those programs themselves. Game shows in some ways have a lot to be proud of in terms of their achievements. But you know what? When the Game Show Network first came on cable, and I thought to myself, why in the world would anybody actually tune in to watch reruns of old game shows? And I get classic sports. Uh, as a sports fan, I totally understand why you might want to watch a great you know, um, bowl game from the past or a classic NCAA tournament matchup. I get that. But game shows, I didn't get. But the reality is... I'm entertained enough by a really old version of something like Family Feud or Match Game that it's a very rare new game show that does that for me. And the old game show format was quick and it was lively. It was a half an hour program. The new ones feel dragged out at one hour. Uh, And, you know, to a degree, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire had a lot to do with rejuvenating the game show as a genre. But it also had the big mistake in my mind of taking the life right out of the genre at the same time. Is that your final answer? Well, about game shows, yes, it is. 
the telefilm. Well, I have a previous inappropriate conversation that's all about made-for-TV movies, and I won't restate it here. But the experimentation that was done with made-for-TV movies, especially in the middle to late 1970s, generated you know some mediocre content, to be, to be sure, but also created some very great results that I don't think you see today because nobody is willing to make a movie that isn't already a sure thing. And that was different when made-for-TV movies were being made by the, ne- by the actual networks. Sports. Well, if I'm going to watch TV, I said it last week. If I'm going to watch TV, I'm more likely to watch sports than anything else. There's absolutely no reality TV show that I'm going to watch that is any better than sports. And to me, sports has the distinction of usually being actually real. Now, give me a replay of a classic football game played 35 years ago over who's getting voted off any island anywhere in the world today. The sitcom. I think the sitcom is probably my favorite of all the current forms of network programming being produced. This is not to say that it's at any sort of pinnacle. It's not to say that it should be praised for being the best out there. It probably should be being getting praised for being the least worst out there. There's no doubt in my mind that the shows that I enjoy the most right now in this current era, that's the Big Bang Theory. Um, the one show that I asked myself the question, what would I watch if I didn't have a DVR? If there was no DVR driving, the kind of programming that I would that I would watch, what would I watch? And I think the answer is consistently been no more than two things. Now, what do I mean by two things? Let's leave the news and the sports out of it and just talk about shows and leave the TV movies out of it too. Talk about shows. What would I watch? And I tend to invest in two things at a time. I first noticed this when Seinfeld came out as a TV sitcom and Law and Order was reaching its its early stride, the original Law and Order before there were 17 other flavors. And those were the shows that I would watch. And on some occasions I would come home from work late and uh, try to get home in time to see them because I didn't have a DVR back then. DVRs make it easier to watch more things than I otherwise would. Now, singling out the sitcom The Big Bang Theory is not necessarily a big insult to other shows that I do enjoy, like Modern Family and How I Met Your Mother. It's just that those are the those are the two other ones, I suppose. I'm more often capturing those on DVR and watching them later, whereas The Big Bang Theory has, at times, changed the schedule. We will decide to eat in instead of going out because we don't want to miss The Big Bang Theory. And even if we're DVRing it, we tend to watch it while we're recording. And sometimes turn around and watch it again. But even on a show I like, uh, like The Big Bang Theory, I can't tell you how many times I'm sitting there saying, oh, well, here's your Dick Van Dyke moment. Or, oh, well, here's your I Love Lucy moment. The people who don't like sitcoms understand something that some people don't notice at all and that I just simply overlook and forgive. And that's that there is very little new, innovative plot or characterization happening in any of these shows. Some of them are so blatant to actually be reproducing elements of shows as recent as Friends, Family Ties, or Night Court. Uh, Again, good examples of the craft, I would say. But each one of them, if you watch enough, you'll notice, well, hey, this is basically just an Archie Bunker moment, isn't it? We're we're reproducing that same situation. Night Court had one where the the court clerk um, was afraid to introduce his grandfather to his wife because she was an oriental woman and basically the grandfather role was just you know archie bunker different race 
So there's very little new under the sun. And that's the biggest problem with sitcoms. The good thing about a sitcom is, though, it's a 30-minute investment. And a 30-minute investment actually only has about 22 minutes of film time to it in this day and age. So it's a, if it's an unhealthy snack, at least it goes down fast. That I would contrast with adult cartoons. I think I'm the kind of person who should like these, but I never have the appetite to invest in them enough to know. Part of that is because my wife absolutely despises adult cartoons. And in the conversations we have about it, it's amusing that she's very open about the fact that she, she doesn't feel like there's anything to apologize for. Her worldview is that animated programs should always be for kids. That anytime you're drawing it and you're not filming it with live actors, it's automatically kid stuff. And for any drawn animation, whether it's good quality animation or what uh, Matt Groening, the creator of Simpsons, always called uh, badly drawn, um, and I mean that as a compliment, that even the badly drawn animation can't have any adult material in it. Perhaps the one that I think rubs her the wrong way the most is probably South Park, where you have all this adult material coming through badly drawn animation from characters who themselves are kids. It's just, in her, in her mind, and I don't disagree with her necessarily, wrong on so many levels. So, for me, adult cartoon, not even a genre. Dramas. Well, again, I, I think Law & Order is about as good of a cop-slash-legal drama as I've seen. I'm not a big fan of medical dramas, and I think part of that is because I just have too much exposure. And in, throughout my life, I've known too many people who work in hospitals. And it just it doesn't seem entertaining to me to deal with, with a hospital drama. So I never was a fan of ER. I don't question its quality. I just never invested in it. But I did invest in Law & Order. I like Law & Order a lot better, in fact, than the things that have followed it. Um, CSI, to me, makes the same mistake that House made, and both of them annoy me because I think that television can be accused of dumbing down the American public. House dumbs down the medical drama by making the doctor the star of the show. Anybody who knows the remotest things about a hospital knows that the doctor isn't running the x-ray machines. He's not doing the blood draws. He's not you know, looking at the laboratory results. And that's one of the things that, in order to maintain the star power of key characters, it's a conceit that House maintains as a show that eventually got to the point where I just couldn't, I couldn't look at that anymore. It just didn't work. It was as close as I got to investing in a medical drama, and mostly because the interesting parts weren't medical. The interesting parts were the, the sarcasm of the lead character and the almost Sherlock Holmesian sort of quality of, of it being more of a mystery show than a medical show. But I abandoned it because I thought that it was dumbing down the American understanding of what happens in the medical profession. And CSI is probably uh, in some ways even worse, where I think people today, your average person on the street, the kind of person that Jay Leno would interview in his late night talk show, sort of have this notion that um, the results of a particular test are either done inside that police laboratory, or if the police laboratory sends out for the test results, they come back the very next day. I got news for you. There's a very good chance that the, the next day the courier hasn't even delivered that sample yet. So that, that's the drama. Do I think that there's some good out there? Is this all just a diatribe about things aren't as good as they were back in the good old days? No, I'm really not trying to be that negative. Uh, as a big Star Trek fan, especially going all the way back to when I was a kid, and it being one of the main reasons to turn on the TV after school, um, science fiction hasn't done that terrible of a job. We've seen some pretty good science fiction lately. My issue is that perhaps the best example of science fiction in recent years was canceled without even completing a single season. I'm referring, of course, to the Joss Whedon show Firefly. 
if a TV show like Firefly can't be expected to survive network TV, what hope is there for science fiction? And for that matter, what hope is there for the Western? I'm not saying that uh, old Westerns on TV like High Chaparral or Alias Smith and Jones or even The Little House on the Prairie were excellent examples of TV at its highest, but they're better Westerns than anything you've seen since. Kung Fu is more likely to get a remake today than any of those ideas of, of traditional Westerns on television. And I don't know whether it is because maybe the Western used to be a less expensive thing to put on television. Maybe now because of the way we've um, developed as a nation and the number of, of high wires and the number of cell towers. And maybe it's just harder to film a Western today than it would have been 30, 40 years ago when there would have been an easier time finding those wide open spaces. Hard to say. Before I wrap up with a complaint about reality TV again, the last one I'd like to deal with is the horror anthology. And I must confess that I'm not the biggest fan of horror as a genre. So there's a lot I've missed. I didn't see a lot of Tales of the Crypt, the Friday the 13th series I missed. Part of that is because of the way my tastes have changed, but part of it is because I really have a very soft spot for The Twilight Zone, the original, Night Gallery, and Circle of Fear. And the quality has gone down over time in the evolution toward the end of the run of Circle of Fear, or Ghost Story, as it was sometimes known in the early to mid-70s. That Those shows did a horror anthology better, in my mind, than anything I've seen since. The idea being, though, that you would have a program where week after week you'd have a different set of characters, a completely different set of actors, although not necessarily, and you would introduce another scary movie plot where the thing bringing you back each week was either the scary movie a one-hour telefilm, as it were, or in the case of something like Night Gallery, the framing element, where Rod Serling was able to speak directly to his audience and introduce a piece of artwork as the framing element for the story that you were going to see. So to me, that was the pinnacle. And there may be very good work being done on Chiller TV or other channels today with horror anthology uh, on television. I just, I'm missing it, clearly. The one thing I'm not missing is reality TV. There's enough reality TV in place today that it is seemingly impossible as just an ordinary average channel surfer to avoid it. I have no patience for any of the fake reality stuff. It's closer to palatable when it's a game show, but a lot of the game shows come across as so crass that it's hard to abide. Um, to me, for anyone who thought that something like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette as taking the dating game to its worst possible extreme was as far as you'd ever want to go. Shows like Temptation Island, I think, tip that over completely. And I'm sure that those aren't even the worst of the craft. I use the term craft loosely here. The, re the reality of it is, pun intended, is that as long as these shows are cheap, and as long as people are willing to watch that combination of reality TV and game show, and what I mean by that, the combination of it, is stuff like Hell's Kitchen, where a competition is going on, and you're following the melodrama, not the drama, but the melodrama of the contestants, and also at the same time following them through chores and contests and tasks, and somebody gets voted off at the end and all that other sort of stuff, it's here to stay. It's too cheap to ignore if you're a producer, and it's finding an audience. To me, what's squeezed out of the market in the interest of reality TV is documentary. 
because someone might be quick to say, well, hey, what about 48 hours? What about 2020? What about Dateline NBC? You know, these things have also devolved. I think they've devolved in two ways. First, they've, they've slowed down their pace and they've stretched out their storytelling and they've promoted the ending before they even get around to telling you the story in much the same way that who wants to be a millionaire will. Let's dwell on this commercial, this question over a commercial break. And we come back, we'll stop everything and give you a chance to call somebody at home. It's drawn out. I rarely see an episode, and I see a fair share of these 2020 or Dateline NBC type shows where I feel like I'm getting an hour's worth of quote unquote news. Are you diving in and giving me a documentary view of a, of a really crucial or really interesting legal case or police situation? Often as not, you're just giving me more sensationalism. Some of it is more sensational, in fact, than Temptation Island ever was. But even then, I feel like when you drag out all the reruns and the flashbacks and the rehashes and the, you know, the intentionally pointless cul-de-sacs and the red herrings, um, I end up seeing 25 minutes worth of stuff in an hour broadcast. And when I'm done, my life is not enriched by knowing whether this man killed his wife or not. And sometimes you get to the end and you don't really find out if this man killed his wife or not. No journalism is happening. From a legal perspective, no discovery is being revealed. It's simply just another example of bad reality TV. I say this as somebody who went to school as a journalism major. The state of journalism today is fairly regrettable. In fact, I think probably the best work is being done on the Internet by people that, when I was going to school, we would have called amateurs. Hey, this is Harrison Ford. And when I'm not on a canal boat in the UK with my sexy other half, Ali McBeal, I'm listening to Here Goes Nothing on the Simply Sint. Shit, where'd she go? Oh, it's okay. She just turned sideways. <laughs> I thought she'd fallen through a crack in the deck. Again. Of course, as a medium, television has some things to recommend it. Uh, gerrymander last week, we talked about four arguments for the elimination of television and as a media itself not being reformable. Uh, today, I'm talking about the quality of the programming itself being bad. So even if you, you concede the fact that it's never going to go away, um, you also kind of have to concede the fact that it's not getting any better. And yet, there's a reason why I still have a landline, a phone company phone in my house. And I haven't just gotten rid of that in favor of cellular communication or Skype communication. The phone company has about a 99.9% .9 reliability rating. I might even be selling them short in terms of when the cell communication doesn't work because of a power outage. When the same power outage takes away my computer so I can't use Skype, the telephone tends to work. Many years ago, after 9-11, but close enough to it to be pretty frightening, the upper Midwest in America had a complete grid outage um, where everybody in my city and everybody in the city I work in and everybody in what you might call the viewing area, if we had our televisions on, we were all blacked out. And it wasn't a terrorist attack. It was a failure of the electrical grid. During that time, the only thing in my home that worked was the telephone. Well, likewise, is television good for something? Well, it's very good for what would I do if there was a tornado that struck my hometown where my mother lives or where my sister lives or hit one of the cities where my brother or brother-in-law live. 
television is probably the best way for me to get visual information, certainly, but even up to date, uh, let's cut into programming and, and talk about what's just happened, kind of cutting edge news communication. The internet's not there yet. At some point, the internet may get to be the place where it replaces TV for this as well. But if there's something going on in the weather outside my house, and I need to know right now if that's a tornado or if it's just a very windy day, television's where I'm going to turn. So is television good for nothing? No, it's good for something. But the band at which it's valuable has become so limited that I'm literally just looking to find out what's going on with the traffic. What's going on with the weather and what's going on today in sports? Those three things are good enough to keep me tuned in. And as I tune in, I'm usually going to pick out a couple of other shows. For comedy, it's the Big Bang Theory right now. Could be Modern Family. For drama, I'm still finding my way. Um, What drama would I tune into if I didn't have a DVR? Right now, the answer is none of them. The shows that I do tune into... From time to time, Body of Evidence is a new one. It's finding its way. The Mentalist, always, always recorded and screened first. Because I just don't have the time to invest in something that doesn't seem to take me as seriously as a viewer as I once took it. From elementary school through the early part of junior high school, I'm sure I saw every episode of Star Trek during that after-school time slot multiple times. There is no drama or sci-fi show, or Western, or political drama on television today that I'm likely to intentionally watch more than once. That's a state of the union that television needs to take into account. Because with viewing on demand being so prevalent now, with what Netflix is doing, with what the internet has been providing for quite some time, with uh, DVRs and um, Blu-ray players, and the ability to plug in a movie and play it at will, Television's not guaranteed. At the same time, the number of available channels has proliferated. The quality of the shows has gone down. Now, you might assume there's a correlation there, but I don't believe that's true. I don't think there's any reason to believe that the presence of a food and cooking channel or a home and garden channel should make the quality of this season's cop drama or medical drama worse. And yet it seems to have occurred. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. And comments are enabled at the website for the show, inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.